Good morning, everyone. Oh, there we are. How are you all? How are you? There you go, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Um, I, uh, when um, uh, Wendy clicked me through an email, I was so excited because it's an opportunity to talk about um, some of my most favorite things. So it's, uh, it's great to be here. So thank you very much for, for having me. Uh, today, um, we are here to uh, hear about Action Research, uh, another name for it is Practitioner Inquiry. And so I've got the theory, and then the people who follow me have got all the action. Uh, so I'm trying to you know, uh, stay with me for a little bit longer um, until we um, until get on to all the really exciting bits. Oh yes, we just want to look at you. See, your IT skills are amazing. Oh, yes. <laughs> I guess I should introduce me just uh, just quickly for those of you who don't know me. Um, I have been uh, a teacher for about uh, 27 years. Uh, I taught uh, in the early years for about 10. Uh, became a school principal. Um, I've also done a little bit of background in psychology because when you're a school principal, it's much more about psychology of people as opposed to just their education. Uh, so I did that a little bit um, too. Uh, today's not really going to be a therapy session. It's just going to be a chance for you to just relax and, and enjoy um, learning something new, I hope. Uh, and then also, uh, since in the last four years, I have uh, started my own early learning school, um, which is in Sydney. And if you're ever up there and you'd like to um, check out uh, Thinkers Inc., then you'd be most welcome to um, try to drop me an email because it would be great to, to show you around and introduce you to uh, some of the children and my teachers. But the reason I'm here today is because I'm also the Chief Investigator of the Planning Gratitude Project, which is an action research uh, project that I'm very proud to say, along with my colleague uh, Fiona O'Donnell, is now about 4,500 strong across Australia, and it continues to grow. So we're hoping that um, today, once you find out about uh, how action research can really change uh, your work environment, your learning environment, but you might also like to uh, jump into a little bit of gratitude and play with that with us because we'd love to have you on board as well. So let's uh, get cracking. I love this picture because it's totally about what action research can feel like. Fast and a little bit dangerous, okay? It really is about this, um, op this idea of learning something new and changing and being a bit brave and embracing that change. That's really what it's about. And I think uh, you and I, uh, working in the early years, we absolutely know that we know that we know that the people that we're working alongside are changing in incredible ways every single day, right? Yeah. Okay, you nods of head, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So what we do and how we bring ourselves into our workplaces and our play spaces is absolutely critical. We can't just rest on our laurels. Oh, thank goodness all those assignments are done. Right, I'll just crack on now. No, it's about how are you improving, how are you growing in order to be the best version of yourself so that you can be the best um, participant, critical friend, player, uh, with the children that you're working alongside. And that's such an important uh, mantle that we all have 
uh, in this industry and in this sector. So it really is about getting new insights. It's about being a little bit brave. Uh, and it's actually just about, uh, I, and I, one of the things I love the most about action research is it's, I don't have to go too far to actually choose an area or find something to investigate. Uh, my team this year have just done, uh, up in Thinkers Inc, have just done uh, some action research projects around persistence, agency, agility, uh, gratitude, um, and a, a whole bunch of other ones. And they have learned so much just by taking on this action research uh, mantle. And I'd love for you to, to be part of it and I guess get excited about it as much as we are. I think the thing there is that in early childhood settings, action research can produce and change things and the way we do things and having to change our understanding. Um, and I think that is at the heart of what it's all about. It's about, it has to start with you. It has to start with your desire to go, mm, what do I need to do to be different? What do I need to do to change? What do I need to do to uh, think differently in order to make a difference for the play space or the play environment that we are we're in? Action research, and I think this is the thing that as a quote that I really love, and it absolutely is fundamental, um, fundamentally the truth. Action research cuts, cuts across the theory and the practice divide. When I do uh, some consulting um, in uh, the early years uh, sector as well, and one of the things that lots of educators and uh, educational leaders and directors, they ask me all the time, yeah, right, but we've got a whole bunch of this theory and it's really good, but when you know, it's too busy, we, we're super busy, we, you know, how do we get it in, you know, take this theoretical abstract thinking and put it into our practice every single day, not just when you've got that moment in time in front of a computer and you pull out that, you know, that uh, theorist that you're trying to, you know, talk about um, or think about or connect into learning. Well, the great thing about action research is that it totally brings this theoretical concepts and puts them right smack bang into what you're doing. It's not about doing extra, okay? I want you to just relax, breathe that in, breathe it out. It's not about doing extra. It's about being considerate, or if you like to use the word intentional, purposeful, thoughtful, and deliberate around what you're doing in the everyday. So your action research can actually be, as you're sitting and, or, might be running around the outdoor space or you know, um, playing uh, and being critical thinkers with the children um, as they're learning and grow um, in the inside space. Uh, it doesn't really matter, but that theoretical approach is you engage in the process of action research can actually uh, bring those, those ideas and those concepts that seem to sit up out here. You know, those people that spend their whole life writing about these ideas and you're like, okay, well, I'm spending my whole life doing this with children. How do I bring the two together? And that's the great thing about action research. So I've got a little bit of a diagram here for you. This is, this is my hybrid version. Uh, so um, let's just talk about this. And I guess for me, um, this is the, the core of what I want to talk to you about today. And from here, we'll then jump in and I'll hopefully give you some examples of what the Gratitude Project looks within this. So we start up the top there where it says identify the problem and envision success. I want you all to get out those magic ones. I know you all have them hidden in your, uh, your dress-up boxes. 
uh, and wave it over a problem or an issue that you feel like you're having or that you've been aware of. The Play With Gratitude project came out of that. I was looking at the well-being of the children and families uh, within my own preschool as well as those people that I was working with and there was a big issue um, that I was starting to see. And as I was doing my professional reading and I was going to some conferences, some things came out for me that was absolutely, which just sh uh, shook me to the core of who I was. So what I wanted to do, I wanted to create an opportunity where this wellness or well-being could start to flourish. And so that's what we did. We identified the problem and we thought about what we would like it to be. Waving that magic wand over that problem and you know, in five years time, what would it look like? What's the possibility? And have that as your vision for where you're wanting to go. It's super important. Now, do we hold so fast to that that then, you know, if it doesn't quite look like that at the end, do we feel like failure? No, we don't. Okay, it's, it's about the vision and the actual reality and the way in which it, it formulated, uh, formulates itself is needs to be a little bit flexible. I like to think of it, don't hold your idea like this, but hold your idea like this. And uh, that's what happened with the Gratitude Project. Fiona and I were talking about it, we got really passionate, yes, this is the story that we want to have. And now we're looking at it going, wow, it's a little bit different to where we felt it was going, but we're so excited about where it is. The next thing that you want to do is you want to collect the clean data. Now, um, the clean data is just go and observe once you've identified the issue, go and observe what it is that is actually happening in your workplace. What sort of conversations are genuinely there? Because if you go and say to everybody, oh, we want to work on mental health and it's so important, then everybody's going to be really aware of mental health. Oh, yes, you know, all of a sudden you get a different flavour of what's really there. So we say, go and collect the clean data. The other thing that you're doing at this stage is that you're going out and you're doing a little bit of investigation. So for me, one of the things I was doing was I, I found a couple of conferences around um, mental health and how important it is, particularly within the Australian context, for us to understand the complexities of that. The other thing I was doing was I was enjoying Audible. I don't know about you, but I didn't have bucket loads of time to just sort of sit back and read a book. So I downloaded the Audible app and I started listening to an incredible researcher. Uh, her name is Brené Brown. And she was talking about vulnerability. And she was talking about uh, how important this whole process is to our mental health across the lifespan. And then I found out some things. Uh, I found a great book by um, a, a researcher uh, from the um, National Play Institute. That sounds like a good institute to attend, I have to say. Uh, and I read his book. And I watched a couple of his TED Talks. So I was collecting some data as I was going on because it was feeding my interest. But it was so important for me just to go and you know, hang out with my crew, hang out with the children, listen carefully to the stories around how families were going, how they were coping, what mechanism were they using to, to flourish and to, to, um, you know, to manage the situations that they were faced with. That was the clean data that I was collecting. We didn't talk about it beyond that. Then I came back and I had a look at the data. This is the uh, analysing bit. Now, analysing is really not as tricky as you think it is. Analyzing is simply, you know, you have your idea. Here's your idea, okay? So analyzing is simply, what are the different parts to that idea? So this idea that I'm holding up here, it's got five different parts. 
It's not any more complicated than that. What are the parts? Uh, how important are they? Do you value them? And if you do, why? And if you don't think it's so important, what, what's going on there? How are the discussion around there? And then we have to, we have to form some conclusions in response to the way in which you analyse um, the, the information that you've gathered, the data that you've gathered. Now, those conclusions for us with the Playing with Gratitude project, for example, well, okay, this is what are we going to do about this problem and how can we embed gratitude and help people to understand play um, in, a, in a new and interesting way that hopefully will see the change that we believe we now understand uh, we can experience. In, in our early learning environments. Then um, you analyze, you have a, once you've formed your conclusions, you jump in and you go, right, let's start thinking differently. Let's start doing something a little bit differently. Let's start having lots of conversations around gratitude. If you uh, spend too much time sitting on my shoulder in my life, people are now starting to call me the gratitude guy because people say, well, what are you doing? I say, oh, well, let me tell you. And I seem to talk about gratitude all the time. And all of a sudden, the relationships that I'm having started to change. And once you start to uh, do and, and put your thinking, your new thinking, that new knowledge into action, you start to get people responding to you differently. Then we're up here to adjust your theory and then to retest your thinking. So I was starting to have all these amazing conversations. Things were starting to change. People were asking me questions. I was changing. I was becoming a different person based on the fact that all the information that, that I had gathered and was continuing to gather was starting to change me. And um, as a result, we then went back um, into our project and we, we changed it and we built it and we made it stronger because of what we were observing. And that's exactly what you want to be doing in your work, in your play spaces, is once you've thrown some ideas around and you've gone out there and you've tested it, then come back and say, were we on the right track? Was our thinking, our analysis, right? Did we work out out of these five points that the, we didn't really want these two, but we wanted these three? Hang on, let's go back. Actually, we do need this one. It's really important that you just revisit and then revisit. If you were going to be doing a project with me, for instance, and with my team, we would do it once a month. We would, if you like, have a little mini cycle within the cycle. And we would, every month, we would come back and we'd say, well, where are you up to? What have you learned? What have you observed? What do you now think about your colleagues, about this idea, about this concept, about the problem? How are the children responding to it? How are the families responding to it? What are the sorts of discussions? You know, when I was reading this book, this, um, uh, this author was brought this idea up, but we don't see it like that here. So what's the difference? Why is it different for us? And then you do that, I would say, I, my suggestion is about six months worth of this reflection, then you move on to the last part of the cycle, which is the reflect and the evaluate. Where, were you, where did you start from? What was the beginning point? What was next? What happened in response to that first initial learnings that you, and an idea um, gathering that you had? And then as a result of that, have we been able to get so excited and passionate about this concept, this concept of change, that now we just want to do it anyway? Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the um, impact of uh, how gratitude, uh, the Gratitude Project uh, work uh, is now working um, 
that part of the process in just a minute. But in the middle of the circle here, you can see that there, it's a, it is a spiral. And as a result of doing the gratitude project, or playing the gratitude project, we have learnt so many things. First of all, about us. There's so many interesting discussions that are coming out about that and our pedagogy and how we see ourselves and how we respond to children. And then as you go down that cycle, another idea gives birth and we start the cycle again. And so it starts to just spin, not out of control, but thoughtfully, deliberately, and purposefully. And it makes such a huge difference in your environment. So, these are the key steps. If you want to get into action research, if you really want to see some great change, be brave and jump into this. And it doesn't matter whether you start with a huge topic that you feel like it's going to change the whole of the organisation, or you want to just start with one little part with one family who you know is in, who is really vulnerable and who really needs some work. That's, that's not a problem. Either, either are fantastic. But it's about how you approach and what you bring um, and how you bring yourself to the problem and then what you do in response to that. Uh, and particularly with the Gratitude Project, there's a lot of people now who won't go, oh, gratitude, um, and sort of pop it off. They're like, oh, gratitude is like something so important along the way. This is just a great diagram I love to, to show because this is what I call action research in action. And um, it's called the Blooming Butterfly because this is a way of thinking. And Benjamin Bloom, he's an educational researcher, uh, and he has um, put this, this uh, it's called a taxonomy, in other words, a way of thinking, uh, to be able to get to the core of the type of change that you want. And in the middle of the, um, the, the butterfly there, you've got the word remembering. Remembering is the easiest type of thinking. What's your name, Rob? Simple, easy. Not a lot of method applied to that. Then the next one is understanding. And then, um, the research there is saying that you remember something and then you understand how and why that's in a relevant piece of information. So you're trying to get hold of me, you know that I'm out. You're not going to ring, ring my landline, you're going to ring my mobile. You understand the difference. Then it goes to applying. So you actually then do ring my mobile. Um, and that's it's a very simple first three stages of the thinking taxonomy, or the, the, this process of thinking. That is the easy part, but that's not where the best part lies. Okay, that bit you can do in a couple of conversations. It's the next part that really makes, really will float my boat and will make your environment and um, um, I guess getting excited and passionate around change come alive. So the next part's the analyzing. Remember, the idea. Okay, this is our problem, guys. Let's start pulling it apart. What are the different sections? Uh, then it's evaluating. It really is, okay, here are our five parts. Right, do, what do we think about this first part? Do we love it? Yes. Let's tell us why we love it. Second one, do we like it? No, we don't like it. Well, why don't we think it's relevant to us? If it's not, is it gonna help us to change? Is it going to help us to grow? Is it help, going to help us to become better versions, um, better teachers, um, um, and uh, be able to connect um, more uh, thoughtfully with children and respectfully? <coughs> then the last part is the bit where the magic happens. Now, creating, it's not about making 
um, some a scrapbook. Okay, but not it's not that type of Okay, so creating is what, uh, or you we could also put the word innovation there. Now, what it just simply means is that you've gathered your parts that you love. Here are the parts that you love. Then you say to yourself, you know what, we need a couple of extra parts because we feel like there's parts missing. Let's add in the two new parts. And as a result, we now have a new way of thinking about the problem. <coughs> we have innovated because we've brought uh, two separate ways of thinking together to build a new idea. Example, play. The, our project is called the Play in the Gradually Project. We've looked at and we've researched what is, how does play influence people, okay, not children, people across the lifespan. Some of that stuff that I found out is breathtaking around the, the influence that play has on you and I right now today and your mental health. Okay, so that was one idea. How does play change the capacity of children for their lifespan? Well, this that's another whole presentation I can talk about that for hours because it's massive. So that's one idea that we brought together. Uh, and we brought it together with the concept of gratitude. What does gratitude do? <laughs> Breathtaking research around how gratitude changes your bone marrow. That's how deeply it goes into your system. So when we bring these two ideas together, playing with gratitude, this is what we were having for, and that was the creating, that was the innovation. And what I've got here for you is just a few questions that help you in, um, I guess, the collection of your thinking. So the remembering, well, what do I be doing about this problem? What stands out for others? Because it's corporate thinking. Understanding, well, what was important about it? Why have I even thought this idea through? And, and what was important to others? Because perspective is everything. And you need to remember that. Um, so getting other people's perspectives is uh, collecting pressure. Applying, where would I use this again? Or where have I seen it before? Analyzing, do I see patterns in what I did? And what are the parts? Really, really interesting to see where and how those patterns and the parts come together. How well did I go and how am I changed? That's the evaluation. What's, what is the response in me as a result of what I've been experiencing and doing and planning and thinking about? And then what should I do next? And what is the opportunity for innovation? So that's really the thinking part. And let's face it, guys. The biggest and the hardest thing about action research is the thought process. And that's it. The application idea is something that you'll be able to do no problems. I have incredible confidence in each of you. But the hardest part is what goes on up here. That's the place where you've got to spend a lot of time investigating what's going on up here. And then connecting with the people around you and start to understand what's happening with their thinking. That's the hardest and the most important job that action research is requiring of you. So we love the fact that the ULF is part of this as well. You know, some questions there to help prompt you to, to I guess, uh, look a little bit um, beyond yourself and, um, and what the question might be that is, um, I guess, is wanting to drive that change. So let me tell you a little bit more about the Playing with Gratitude project in relation to what I've said. 
So the pain of gratitude project, what we found out was that there was a mantra and there was three things that we have to do. We have to look for it, we have to take it in, and we need to give it back. And if we want gratitude to make a difference in our lives, then that's what we needed to do. Process, super simple. Looking for it is just saying, what am I grateful for? I am grateful, for instance, for my dear friend Fiona. Why am I grateful for her is the taking it in. How am I changed because of the relationship? How am I different because of when we're together, when I'm listening to her and when she's responding and having a reciprocal conversation with me? As I think upon those things, I'm changed. Because I'm feeling valued, I'm feeling respected, I'm feeling loved, I'm feeling cared for. And I love the fact that we now have a friendship where she feels totally okay to disagree with me. And then we comfortably say, how are we going to move through this? Because of the take it in. The take it in bit is the most important part. I like to think of it, and you've probably, and hopefully you've all seen this, you've got up in the morning and the sponge on the kitchen sink is super dry and squashed. And some of you might have even been a bit brave to go, oh, it's a bit snowy. Um, <laughs> but then you get the hot water or the water and you've got that dry sponge, you turn on the water and then you let that dry sponge go, oh. You know what I'm talking about? That's the taking it in. It's like being saturated with the thinking. Now, in our busy life, how much time do we spend taking in the goodness that's around us? If you're anything like the sample of um, I've been taking, which is about 2,000 people, we're not very good at that because we're busy, busy, busy. But when it comes to gratitude, it actually says let that gratefulness just saturate you. Why is it that you are grateful for the person that's sitting beside you, the child that's what you're working alongside with? Let that wash over you and feel the change in response. And I can guarantee you, if you do it for 21 days, you will be messaging me and saying, yes, Rod, it does work. Not my idea. We got our ideas from Professor Robert Evans, and he's a world researcher, world leader, I should say, in the work of gratitude on how it changes us physically. It changes us in three domains. It changes us in our physical, our psychological, and our social. It's tremendous. And we're working, the project is now working with um, concrete com companies and, um, and um, accountants. And I don't know if you know accountants, but they are very skeptical. They're like, really? Is that real, a real receipt? Um, and they just said that they listened to it, and by the end of it, they were um, they are astounded by how it changes them. And I always say at this point when I talk about this project is if you've got this technology there, send somebody a text and say to them, I'm grateful for you because this is how I am changed because of our relationship. So I won't be offended if you get a piece of technology and start to do that now. The last part of the mantra is give it back. In response to how you've been changed, you go and do things differently. The children that we've been working alongside and playing with the concept of gratitude are actually different. They are responding to their friends, to their families, to their environments, the physical environments differently because of how they've been able to take the gratitude in as being led intensely by their teachers and leaders. It's one of, I love the stories you got back where one little girl said to her dad, Dad, what are you grateful for? And before he could answer the question, she said, here are three things, and he was gobsmacked because he was like, well, actually, you're right. <laughs> and uh, it was a, a great story to, to, and we have so many of those to tell, um, but it takes it. So gratitude absolutely changes us.
The other thing that we know is that we learned this from um, Shubham is that a lack of play should be treated like malnutrition. Now, I don't know if you know much about malnutrition. I, to understand this quote, I did a little bit of research. In other words, I googled what is the problem with malnutrition. Wow. Okay, so if he's right, and which this quote got me into his research, if this quote is right, we need to get into play like there is no tomorrow. And I'll tell you what, there are a team of doctors around people who have malnutrition. They are, they are experts in this concept, and it changes who you are, and play does exactly the same thing. So we uh, looked a bit further and we came, I found this, I found that right around the world nobody can agree on what play means. Because it's such this, it's this big, um, you know, abstract concept and it's so powerful. And I just happened to like this one, so I thought I'd better show you um, uh, to sort of give you uh, a bit of an idea about how we are thinking about play and the aspects and the elements of play. And it's absolutely delightful to watch and to see children and adults alike when they have all these elements in a play setting while they are just, they're literally, they're skipping through life. And of course, from a mental health perspective, that is 101. And there's nothing better than a three and a half year old skipping into your office and putting their hand around you and saying, Hi, Rob, I just love you. Oh, look at great, I love you too, thanks. And you know, and then off they go and they're skipping and they're humming and you're like, you know what? There is something, that is a gift that I never want you to lose. And so I have to do everything in my power, everything from a pedagogical perspective in order to make that change. Uh, and, and to continue that change and make it a reality for them beyond our preschool environment. So the process for us was, how do we build mental health? That was our initial question. That was what we wanted to investigate. Then we said, right, we need to start with the team members, not the children, we're not ready for them yet. We needed to work out how we fit with this whole concept of play and gratitude. How do we bring it together? And then as a result of that change happening in us as teachers and leaders, then we were going to be able to authentically offer it to children and to families, which was the next step. And as I said, we've got millions of stories, uh, well not millions, let's be honest, thousands, um, of stories where we have seen relationships between children and children, children to teachers, children to siblings, children to parents change because the children that we were working and playing alongside were being changed because of how we were playing with gratitude with them every day. It was re it's remarkable. It is, there's nothing better than when a dad comes up to you and he's crying, he's got his daughter in his arms and he says, because of the playing with gratitude that you've been doing with her, I now see her as a capable, confident young woman. And I'm just like, yes, we've done our job. And that is what we've had as an outcome of this process. And then of course the last phase, the last um, section there, which totally uh, just, I mean, I guess I hadn't really thought that far ahead and what was the impact, that the children were actually caring for their physical environment in a different way because of gratitude and play having um, their way within them. And of course that was making such a huge difference in their well-being. One of the things that we did to make it a little bit more rigorous was we used a peer review scale around well-being to measure growth. Rather than it just being, oh, well, what, Rob's got a good idea around this, let's just whack that together and have a go. We thought, no, let's turn it into, uh, let's use a tool that's been peer reviewed around measuring well-being, because that was the whole point that we wanted to address. 
So here at the end of our first round um, of uh, those, those organisations, we had um, nine altogether as part of this. We collected our data. And each week, um, the teachers and the families gave us feedback. And you can see there how all those areas which, um, excuse me, all those areas that reference our well-being have, as a result of playing with gratitude, increased. And all we did, we didn't talk to them about, so, tell me about your vitality, your vitality today. Are you feeling good about that? We didn't do that. We just played with gratitude. We told them about how grateful we were for them and told them why. Uh, and they then started to reciprocate that understanding. I think the overall, the thing that we learned most about this project um, as we wrapped up it in the first round was its gratitude's universal ability to influence deep and significant change through play and gratitude when they come together. And it was all around wellness. It was all around wellness. It was all about looking at life and saying, you know what, I can do it, even though life seems a bit tricky. And we know that between you know, birth to five, their brains are growing to about 387% and they've got 1,000 trillion synapses firing off in their minds every single day. So their capacity to grow and build is enormous. So let's grow and build those foundations that are around wellness and health and well-being to make, hopefully to make, to lay a foundation so that when those tricky times come in their life, things can be different. I love the fact, um, just to wrap up, that gratitude has, is, well, we call it gratitude audacity. Once you start being thankful um, and grateful for things, you know, gratitude says, is, oh, excellent, I'm just going to do my work irrespective of how old you are or where you're from. And it just does its job. It changes you um, and it helps you to see things differently. It's not necessarily about positive thinking. It's about being grateful for whatever it is that you can find in your life. And that was certainly where we started with the teachers and the children. You know, when we had the gratitude circle, we'd say, when we first started the project, I'd say, what are you grateful for? And they'd go, mum, 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 someone brave, dad, mum, 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 mum. Now, a year on, they'll say, I'm grateful for mum because she hugs me and she kisses me and I know those hugs and kisses mean that she loves me. Now, to me, I'm just like, the fact that you can articulate that means everything to me. Because it means you truly understand the importance of this person in your life and the importance of relationships and reciprocal relationships to help build a better future for you. So, in wrapping up my little presentation, it's oh, we'll skip that one and we'll just go straight to this one. Is um, don't be afraid of action research, uh, just make that decision that you'll want to see that change more then um, you're afraid of it. And then ask yourself that question. It's a great question to help you with your action research process. How are you going to uncap your thinking today? If you're feeling stuck with something, then how are you going to unstick yourself? How are you going to get unstuck? Thank you, everybody, for um, your ears and your minds this morning. It's been great. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Rod. So we are presenting um, this project on behalf of YMCA Holder, the educators who you can see on the screen, um, the children and the families who participated in um, the project, the questions, gave feedback. 
Um, with me today I have Aurelie, who is a preschool educator, um, three to five year olds, and Tim, um, who is a toddler educator, lead educator. They both have just come back just a couple of weeks ago, come back from presenting this very presentation at the ECA conference in Sydney, and we're really happy to be able to share this back in Canberra um, with our colleagues here. I am Jessica, I am um, presenting on behalf of Sharon Leaders, who is the director of Holder ELC. She was unable to come today, um, so I hope I do her um, leadership of this project justice. I will be reading her notes fairly closely so that I um, get it right, because I wasn't directly involved um, in the six months that they did this project. So this is Holder. Um, it opened in 2014, um, was tended by the ACT government to the YMCA Canberra. It's one of the largest centres in the ACT with 10 rooms, um, which we refer to as five pods, um, birth to five, um, making up 126 children a day. Um, the centre has a country feel, smells of chef delights, green grass and animals, and to the team and the educators and the children and families there, it's like home. So, with this um, topic that came about, I'm going to try and stop that. Um, these are Sharon's words. I'm a passionate advocate for social justice and inclusive practice. I want children to be treated fairly and with kindness. I want children to have access to educational programs rich in diversity. I want children to grow up in a society that has less discrimination, fear and hatred. It's what we all want, isn't it? However, to do this, I had to ask some pretty challenging and confronting questions about the team at Holder. Am I comfortable with the team's knowledge and understanding of social justice topics? Am I confident with the team's ability to discuss bias with children? Am I sure that there is no discrimination, bias or racism amongst the team? To be honest, Sharon wasn't sure about any of those things and had heard conversations, comments, um, practices around the centre that she you know, made her um, ask these questions of herself and her team. With such a robust team of 34, was it even possible for this to happen? Take a moment, have a chat to the people around you, ask them where they were born, where they were raised, what their experiences have been in their lives. Thank you. 
It's what makes us different. Different values, beliefs, experiences will all differ. Now this is a raised hand question, I believe. How many of you have had, have had close experiences with children or adults with a disability? How many of you have had, have had experienced extreme racism or exclusion in your lives? How many of you have associated with the LGBT community? Remember all of that. Sharon will be very proud of Team Holder wasn't comfortable with social justice topics and even at times avoided them. We wanted our educators to be courageous when talking about racism, a team who are open to talking about gender equity and sexism, a team who are confident and comfortable with disability. If we cannot achieve this, how can we have a voice for children? How do we provide fair and inclusive programs that respect the rights of every child? So, after all of that, they started a practitioner inquiry project on social justice and inclusive practice. Molly Roden helped them out for the six months. Molly's down here. And during these six months, they aimed to identify and confront any bias in their team, reflected on their understanding of social justice topics in the community and its role at the YMCA, built on their existing knowledge and challenged their ability to implement inclusive practices, and become confident advocates for children's rights by implementing a program that is fair, respectful, and welcomes differences. So Tim and Oralee are gonna share the practical part of their project um, and how they came about some of the answers to their questions. So we started our project by participating in a reflective session chosen to change the team thinking and provoke change. Discrimination and the media was designed to discreetly gain an understanding of the team's knowledge on social justice topics. Do we really know what social justice means? Educators were asked to choose a variety of social justice articles that stood out to them and why. There were silence, concentration, and heated discussion. And on one stage, we even heard, what's an Asian newspaper doing in the pie? We can't read that, it's useless. We reviewed our team's finding and it was obvious that the team's knowledge was limited. Many of the articles chosen were not related to disability, racism, sexism, or gender. They were vaguely connected to medical topics or child protection issues or there were sensationalized articles such as the Pauline Hanson and the Parliament House incidents. We found <coughs> a total of 24 articles and only 12 related to social justice topics. Six on racial bias, four on gender, two on sexism, and surprisingly, none on disability. However, what was more disheartening was only one article was representing with a positive, inclusive message. 
We went into this session understanding that social justice was about being fair. However, we underestimated the depth of bias in our country and the impact it can have on children's rights. We need to ask ourselves, are we exposing these topics positively with children? Are we uncomfortable with social justice topics and do we just avoid them because the conversation is just too hard? Or are we just playing bias? Uh, we watched a confronting and thought-provoking video by Jane Elliott, a former school teacher, anti-racism activist, and a proud feminist. Jane conducted a well-known human experiment in which volunteers experienced awful bias due to having blue eyes or brown eyes. We watched the energy in the room shift. The confronting message from the video was beginning to affect everybody. Educators were shaking their heads, facial expressions were appalled, and bodies began to wriggle in their seats. My feelings went from anger to concern and empathy. Their facial expressions and body language are obviously telling a story. And I wondered, had they been the victims of our community's biased attitudes? Had they felt isolated or segregated? Do they feel respected for who they are individually or culturally? These emotions were not surprising. The video was designed to provoke thoughts and feelings. It was designed for participants to question their beliefs and values in the hopes that attitudes change regarding biased opinions and respect for all. I began to question myself. Have I developed or learned biased behaviour through homeschool or work? Have I been the victim of biased attitudes? What was causing me to feel this anger and disgust? And what can we do to address these issues? The solution is to become a vocal advocate for the rights of a child and state boldly, no more influencing or guiding people's biased opinions. No more isolating cultures or individuals in our program. No more inequality for the children, families and educators at YMCA Holder or in our wider community. Each room unpacked a social justice topic from fair to fair, how to tackle bias in education and care. We gained an idea of what bias services look like. They actively exclude children because of funding or behaviour. Their representation of culture is tokenistic and they use language that is outdated, biased and sexist. We observed our environments and reflected on our practices, actions, our role as educators and the language we used. We thought carefully about how we collaborate with families our sense of policies and procedures, and our role in the community. But more importantly, we discussed why this is also important to respecting the rights of a child. Are we giving the children the rights to be themselves? Each part chose a social justice topics from Faith Fair and when asked to present a 20-minute session highlighting their understanding of either racial bias, disability, gender or sexism. It was challenging putting all the research into a 20 minute session. However, each one had a key message that emerged. The presentation on racial bias highlighted that being different is not only okay, it is to be celebrated. We know each child is unique with different ways of being, but how do we help children to understand this? They looked at the children and the interest to find ways to teach children about diversity through play. The children in these sports love gardening. They quite often plant seeds, water plants, pick flowers. Educators use the flowers as a way to see difference. 
all flowers are different, but they are still flowers. All people are different, but we are still people. They then asked the children, what makes you different? Remy said, my hair. Lachlan said, I'm yellow. This reinforced our understanding that children are capable of learning about difference if it is connected to an interest. They began to understand they can still play together, learn together, and understand each other, even though they are different. <coughs> disability was chosen by two poets. They believe it's important to be exposed to disability, to understand it, and that disability is not always visible. The team recognized that many children and families may not have had the opportunity to meet someone with a disability, and acknowledged that this may be uncomfortable, scary, or awkward for them. <coughs> they invited a person with a disability into their space with the aim to help them feel comfortable, understand, and respect difference. Gianna works for Gigi's flowers and has Down syndrome, but it does not define who she is. She's a bubbly 18 years old. She is friendly, affectionate, and welcoming. She's a prime example of how a strong, enthusiastic woman of any ability can be valued in the community. The children and Gianna's sang song, danced, jumped around, laughed and giggled together all morning. Gianna was so thankful for the opportunity. The second part showed us that some disabilities are hidden and some are visible. They question, <coughs> do we see them or the disability? The educators involved children and family in some reflective questioning it was apparent both children and families believe everybody should have the opportunity <coughs> to participate. For example, a family said, we want to ensure that everyone is treated as equal. And a child said, we should invite them to play. During this project, we found that our own team had diverse needs in both physical and mental health. It helped us to understand the importance of looking beyond the disability and to develop an appreciation for who they are and how they need to be included. <coughs> YMCA values are honesty, caring, respect, and responsibility. <coughs> this team of educators believe we need to be honest, vulnerable, and acknowledge what we know and what we don't. We need to be kind to each other show empathy and care to people of all abilities. We need to respect the strengths of each individual despite their ability and we need to be responsible <coughs> for ensuring all children, families and the wider community are given opportunity to be included no matter what their abilities are. Uh, my pod presented gender bias. While researching for this topic, we discovered the effect gender bias has on our language, children's play, and the way we set up our environments. Our research presented two crucial questions. What is bias and what is gender? It illustrated how easily children can be influenced by role models. We formed the belief in the importance of the children's agency, 
providing them the right to choose without seeing gender bias from educators or the environment around them. We conclude that children have the right to be respected, not labelled by gender, name, culture or ability, and the opportunity to participate becomes a key to developing a strong sense of belonging and identity. One of the most feared presentations was on sexuality. The preschool team believed to be a difficult topic. However, they also believed in the child's right to be able to exist in a world regardless of their sexual identity. The key to acceptance is education and opportunity. If the children are educated young, they grow up with, without bias and see all humans for who they want to be. So how do we talk about sexuality with young children? And will families be accepting these conversations? At this time, the marriage equality debate was surfacing in the media, emotionally sensitive discussions were heard, and the gay pride flags were everywhere. It got them thinking. Do the children know about the LGBT flag? Are families discussing it at home? <coughs> to the children, is it all just about rainbows? The team surveyed families asking how they support the child's identity and if they were having these conversations with their child about sexuality at home. The team was overwhelmed with a positive and extensive response. It was clear families can have open discussions about all manner of topics, including sexuality. For example, we'll be supporting his gender identity and choices as he develops. We answer his questions honestly and openly. We approached the topic with children through their environment and play, we chatted in groups and told stories in our talking and thinking floor books. We shared literature about gender and the diversity of families. We explored our identity, what we looked like and where we belonged in a family. We then gave an opportunity to, to extend the perception of marriage through dramatic play. The team felt the children's responses were honest, innocent and inspiring. They responded fluently and without a care. For example, you can marry anyone and I know what a ladyboy is. My dad told me it is someone who is half lady, half man. You can love anyone you want. Their understanding was not influenced by media, religion, or experience. We don't see the world the way a child does, but we do influence it. The children's understanding was straight from the heart. Okay, so how can we stay focused in keeping anti-bias conversations in over time. We wanted to keep it simple, so the team developed a statement. It illustrates the inquiry project's findings and is the heart and soul of the YMCA's holders' beliefs. The statement is what makes us accountable in our practices and it helps us address is what, what is above or below the line of bias. The statement simply says, we have the right to feel included and participate in our own way. We have the right to be the best version of ourselves. We have the right to be respected for our individual way of living and being. We have the right to speak and have our voices heard. So in addition to that statement, each of, um, on the back of the statement um, covers each of the social justice, justice topics that they have um, discussed. So here is an example which relates to the children's rights, which is listed above. Um, and this particular one is around um, gender and sexual inclusion. Um, so it just breaks down um, to be able to put that into action and um, keep each other accountable. Um, things like the YMCA recruitment strategies, focusing on equitable employment, um, all comes into this as well. 
The statement will be reviewed annually and will be given to um, new educators, new families when they arrive at the centre. The work isn't all done yet, so the team has also identified um, some additional work that they will be doing over the next little while. Um, so their next set of goals is to embed inclusive resources into their environments, um, to do some work more work on respectful celebrations, which I know is always a topic um, that educators and centres are discussing, continue developing the Reconciliation Action Plan, um, and the YMCA's Reconciliation Action Plan is almost finalised and should be in place um, at the beginning of November. We will continue to embrace the tricky conversations um, through research, articles, resources, etc. In summary, there was a lot of growth from the team. Educators' knowledge increased and they became more comfortable and articulate. Their interest grew, the questions started, articles circulated, and the reflections have become deeper. Our discussions on social justice and inclusive practice have continued and Sharon happily says she's heard a lot of conversations surface throughout the centre without prompting. The teams will change, the children will change, the families will change, but the social justice and inclusive practice statement will ensure that children's rights are respected and all the voices are heard from years to come. The team wishes to say a big thank you to all the children and families and the community and their involvement and feedback and being very open throughout that process. Sharon also wishes to acknowledge the contributions from Molly um, and the resource guidance from Fair's Fair by Red Ruby Scarlett and Lisa Bryant. Sharon would also like to acknowledge Elizabeth Dow's lifetime commitment to social justice, inclusion and equity for all. The wisdom she shared has driven the project from start to finish. Let's keep those conversations alive.
um, sessions and one was in upper primary and I didn't really like the power dynamics between teacher and child um, and I think it's the co-op and I really enjoyed the, the way things were done. Um, and then I, I was really sporty at the marks today and I wanted to be a PE teacher and I thought, you know what, there's a bit more to life than just sport. Um, and so I was lucky enough to get <laughs> a score that, that allowed me to do early childhood teaching. Um, and then throughout uni, I got a job at, I was lucky enough to get a job at the Young Community School in the preschool. Um, and that followed on to a job at the school after I graduated, which has really helped to shape my identity and philosophy. Um, in terms of social justice and also so social constructivism and um, identifying and treating kids as capable and um, yeah, like responsible and resourceful. Okay, so um, in 2015, um, Latham went under an assessment rating and as we talked about, they received a working towards rating. Um, this would have been quite challenging for you as a You've only been in preschool for not too long a time, but a little bit of time. Yeah, right? so I had, uh, like, I worked at the preschool as I was um, graduating, 2003, whatever it was. And then again, I worked at the Ainsley preschools in the release role, so not really kind of touching on any wildlife stuff, but not really. Um, and yeah, it was really incredibly challenging. So, I mean, I had a kind of decision to make, really, like, someone puts this on your door saying working towards and it's really hard to take. Particularly the, the feedback in the report was it was mostly my practice and my um, planning. Um, so you no, could have walked away from that. Well, I felt like it. Because, <laughs> you made a choice though and it really was a catalyst for change and um, and we're here to talk about that journey and that, that change that happened through that time. And it did happen overnight, did it? Oh, no, not really. Like, I mean, I had the first time go, okay, what do I want to do? Yeah. Do I want to run away or do I want to go and cry or blame to other people? Yeah. Or and Perhaps yeah. the fact that you had that strong philosophy might have spurred you on to stay. That's what I'm just thinking about that now. But, um, yeah, so we'll keep talking. As um, in 2018, I met Evan through the assessment rating process and um, you went through the process and they were um, rated as at exceeding national quality standard this year. And um, and Evan was quite candid and um, open and he um, talked to me about his journey of growth. So thanks, Michelle. Um, so he committed to a journey um, and you connected early on with the um, education director's early child, early years pedagogy team and you develop a strong working relationship with Michelle Foley and um, Gina Nugent, who's up the back. And um, this journey of mentorship um, presented opportunities to get for you to engage in risk-taking, um, honest reflections of yourself and your practice, um, personal research and inquiry, um, and forming connections that um, allowed you to honour your philosophy. Well, I was really lucky to, to already have a connection with Gina. Um, so we worked together at Ainsley for a year and we had some pretty interesting discussions yeah. um, about, well, yeah, pedagogy and um, what we thought, what she thought, what I thought. And it was 
really important, I suppose, that connection because it was someone who could, um, we could talk to, I could talk to, but she'd also challenge my thinking as well. Um, yeah, and also, well, we had a good enough relationship so I could um, take that on board. So that's talking about, um, I think in the past two presentations, they've spoken about having open spaces where you can take in the information and share and challenge and accept other people's views and whatnot. And the relationship with Michelle and Gina really provided that to you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I like what I think Rob was saying about being brave, because I certainly had to be, really. Like, I'm, we got, well, I pretty much got working towards, and, um, yeah, I had to stand up by the front of the work the next day and all that kind of thing. Um, but what that shows about you is that you've got an incredible commitment and um, also that Evan has a sense of um, awareness that he's a work in progress or we're all works in progress and we have room to grow and continually improve and develop our capacity as um, early childhood professionals. So I think that we've got to acknowledge that as well. So thanks, Michelle. Um, we're going to take you this journey. We thought we'd provide some examples, and this was something that Evan did during assessment rating. He shared his 2015 programming with me. He put it all on the table, and he said you know, he was quite um, it was quite interesting. And then he showed the journey of growth in terms of how his practice and programming has changed. Um, do you want to talk us through this? You likened it uh, your initial planning to a laundry list. And, um, and I thought, okay, yeah, laundry list. And then I thought, well, what is a laundry list? And I Googled laundry list, and it came up with a definition talking about like a, an exhaustive list of um, ideas that really have little to no meaning or you know, um, uh, might be considered brilliant to one person, but perhaps not to the other. Um, do you want to talk us through your laundry list and how this demonstrated your relationship with the EYF? Uh, well, I just engagement really like I just would fill it out both really so this and the EYLF so I just kind of stuff like we had these um, outcomes that needed to be filled and so I'd go okay this goes on that table to meet that this goes on that to meet that and there wasn't any big picture thinking it was all very busy and I don't remember um, one of the quotes from the initial report was um, that I think I can't exactly say what it was, but it was something to do with this very um, little link between the things um, out in the room, and it wasn't. Yeah. And so I was like floundering a bit. Like I really wasn't really engaging in this, I was filling it out. Um, and I hadn't thought, like I hadn't found myself, I suppose, in the EYLF. Like I kind of gone, oh, okay, well, that doesn't really make sense to me yet. Um, yeah, so this would go out every week. <laughs> there were lots of, obviously, there were lots of experiences and things that you put on yeah. the tables, um, but one of the things that Evan <coughs> talked to me about was how he was challenged to think about why he was using certain resources. People have this image of how a preschool or an early childhood um, education care service should, um, should look and what should go out and routines that should happen and whatnot. And Evan, um, Gina and Michelle really supported Evan to challenge that, that thinking, didn't they? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I kind of already had what I wanted to do, but it didn't sit with um, what I'd come into. And um, I suppose, as again, being brave enough to do that. Um, and having 
and support for that information, um, which I suppose working with Jenna and Michelle and, um, allowed me to do. So there was like a disconnect between Evan's philosophy, yes. what he wanted to do, with what was happening in practice. So he had that foundation, but it wasn't translating into practice. Okay, thank you. Um, so to get the answers, to, to find that answer, you chose to look deeply into the EYLF, and um, you took, spoke briefly about that before. Um, can you elaborate what you found in the EYLF when you looked really deeply in terms of, I guess it was a mirror for you, and what did you see? Well, I suppose a lot of it um, was about supporting his thinking rather than um, and challenging their ability to, to go further with things. So I mean, letting that come forward was really big for me. Before that, I hadn't really kind of like, what's this following being becoming kind of thing. I hadn't really, I mean, read through it. Um, Jen and Michelle helped me to um, put the language from the EYLF into my observation, into my program. Um, yeah, I saw how I, how I viewed children in there after engaging with that. The process. So you saw your philosophy living within the environment. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And um, we talked a little bit about um, seeing yourself in the EYLF, as in you, you developed a sense of your own <coughs> educator identity yes. in terms of early childhood education. Um, and Evan and I spoke earlier about the importance of that because how can we support our children and facilitate um, opportunities for them to develop a sense of their identity. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know who you are. Yeah. 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 I um, mean that was a big thing working with uh, some mentors who will challenge you and who will probably supportively um you know like get permission to do yourself. Okay. So then it became the frame the, the EYF then became a framework for thinking yeah. that I talked about. Um, and for shared thinking. So I suppose that's, I mean, we're going back to the connection thing. So I, was, I connected with our EYLF, which allowed me to connect and, and I was more engaged with the EYLF, the kids were more engaged in what's happening in the room. I was more engaged with families as well. It just, it's just better. Yeah, <laughs> the dots started. Yeah, the stars started absolutely, absolutely. Um, thanks, Michelle. So um, this, is an, well, this is an example of um, Evan's program, how Evan's program works now. Uh, there's lots of pages. And it's, but, but it's not meaningful, me meaningless, um, it's not a meaningless laundry list. No. It's um, guided by some big picture thinking. Um, do you want to talk us through it? Uh, so every term-ish, um, we, um, we work and meet as a team, so I'm looking at work with another um, excellent preschool educator, Lauren Job, and we meet as a team and think about um, where we kind of, where we're, what we're thinking where the um, program might go. And that's based on observations of children, um, their interests, but also increasing deficits or anything like that. Um, and we come up with a big idea or a big question for us to research. Um, I suppose we'll do that from there. So this will like reflect on the um, observations. Um, the big questions come from that, and then we get plot the possibilities. So we may meet all those, we may meet none, we may might, the children might take it in a totally different direction. And that's one of the things I really like about your thinking in your program, um, is that 
it's so open in terms of the possibilities. So often we see, you know, it's an inquiry approach to learning, but so often we see inquiry learning and um, the questions are predetermined and pre-designed for the children. You know, but the, Evan and Lauren, they really, um, they have a range of possibilities that they can draw on and they know the information that they can use to support that learning, but it's really where the children want to go. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's quite, quite interesting to kind of look at. Okay. Um, I suppose that's, I think that's related as well yeah. within the room. So it's continually evolving, the documentation. Yeah, that's right. So the next slide will show you that um, the shift of thinking in terms of um, shared, the shared thinking, so Eli has a document for shared thinking became visible everywhere. So it was visible in his, um, his initial planning documents. It's visible um, in his programming. It became, they became thinking documents with handwritten notes. They were revisited and um, constantly reflected upon daily. And the next one, there were um, project boards. Oh, I haven't got a photo of the project, whatever, but Evan and his colleagues have these project boards with lines and mind maps and all sorts of things and different directions and possibilities and whatnot and they're part of the planning as well. And then there were things here, this is this is a great project that Evan did called the Courtyard Project. And um talk us through that. Well I suppose we had I had a space in one of the rooms which didn't really I suppose it was my actual research project for this year really. And so we used it a little bit. It was a courtyard. You could only access it through one door. Um, pretty gross paint job. <laughs> if leaves fell into the courtyard, you had to trot them out through the the, um, the rest of the preschool. It was a pretty gross space, really. And I thought, okay, this year I'm going to nail it. And so I talked to the kids. I said, how are we going to make this uh, space a beautiful space for thinking and learning and playing? And we documented our ideas, we came up with designs, we consulted, we were lucky enough to have one of the dads who's an architect, he talked us through. Um, well, he did a 3D image of that, the, the courtyard. And with the children? Yeah. Yeah, it was all, all... It was pretty amazing, so he came in and then talked about, you know, this could go here and this could go there, and, you know, what's possible. Um, and, you know, we obviously had to whittle some of their blue sky thinking, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Like all that, like, refining, and reflecting on what could go out there and what that space will mean to us when it's finally finished. <laughs> on the next slide um, is how the children worked, like um, supported us to visualise their thinking about the courtyard project. So that it was visible in every corner of the room, you know, in the block area, in the, you know, when they were playing in Duplo with their drawing and designing things and they were writing and drawing what they wanted in the courtyard. So it became, so, your thinking became very, very visible. Thanks, Michelle. Um, and because the thinking became visible, the dots became um, connected. And you took the children on this journey as well. What did you notice um, in terms of um, how did, how did you enable the children to become those capable and competent learners? What what was the key change that, other than knowing that you are there? I'm giving them a voice yeah. as well. So I think before that it was kind of all me putting stuff out. Mm -hmm. um, we, like we had a, I think I was trying to 
trying to do projects alongside this document that I was working with, and it just wasn't <laughs> well with me, and it just finally wasn't working. Um, and so Gideon and Boyce, I mean, and that we say that they were in courtyard project. Um, as an instrument which is used to facilitate integration of the younger generation into the logic of the present system and bring about conformity or it becomes the practice of freedom which, sorry, the means by which men and women deal critically and creatively with reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of their world. So that was a quote that I had in the room and it's part of the documentation on transformation. So, um, and that's how I wanted my classroom to be, yeah, rather than having kids come and they're given information we construct it together and that they have freedom and agency over what happens. Yeah, so this is, it's a, it, he's at, Paolo is actually offering us a choice mm. in this quote and he took that choice and um, to empower, you know, children to be critically reflective researchers and uh, in a transformative way and um, that's a form of education that's really very powerful and changes trajectories of, um, of where kids are moving to and where we're travelling to as educators. And it's a really honourable, a highly honourable task, and um, you know, and it's very, it requires a very strong philosophy, which I think you you really you really not only had in the beginning, but you're growing and you know yeah. evolving and continuously sort of reflecting on. Um, So, um, what do you believe are the key attributes that you've discovered that enable your practice to be transformative, <laughs> as Paulo just mentioned, in its effect? I think, um, of course, being brave enough to take on all the criticism, I mean, it's, yeah. it's really hard that assessment ran in 2015. Yeah. But um, I said the other day, I really appreciated the fact that you know, someone was candid enough to say it's not good enough. Really hard process. Um, you know, when I first got my friends, you know, why were they, you know, 
no one else has to put a stick on their door and blah, blah, blah. But often I just kind of set my ego aside. Yeah. Um, once I could look back and kind of go, okay, you know what? This has helped make me a better teacher, better professional, better person in many ways. culture of questioning and continuously asking why has been really important um, and the openness to mistakes and taking educated risks and talking collaboratively has been um, a standout point. Now the next slide has, has an image that I found and I looked at this and I thought oh this is just so, this is exactly what Emma did. So um, when he, it's made of clay or terracotta as well and Emma's a big fan <laughs> of clay now and, um, and he um, essentially looked into the research and into the EYLF and um, it, as you know you know yourself within the pages of the EYLF now. Yeah absolutely so I can kind of see the things that I want to come out of it so I know that you know how important that belonging sense of belonging is for kids how important it is to instill that sense of, of being in community and all that and the you know becoming and talking about butterflies a lot <laughs> so but you know starting to I imagine at this stage they're kind of going into their cocoons before they went into a butterfly and yeah. they're older. But um, yeah, I could really see how I wanted kids to develop into learners, really. Yeah. And this is actually a really important point for um, leadership to take back. And you know, Evan had that, he had a philosophy, but it hadn't been, um, hadn't been out of fly yet, I think, because of the predetermined notion of what should happen in a preschool environment and whatnot. And um, and I guess in terms of if you're leading or um, mentoring um, colleagues, it's really important to um, to allow our educators to find themselves and show you who they want to be, because then that's where um, you know they can blossom and um, grow. So.
further points at it. So when he revisited again, it um, enabled a different way of looking at the world and different different thinking. Yeah, so absolutely. And, yeah. and that was on, like with the help of like someone who I I trusted. Yeah. So someone who like challenged. And what I sort of took away from your journey was um, that you know it's important for us as educators to be of the document and to belong within the document and also to become you know with the document as well. So you know embrace that belonging being becoming as part of our practitioner <coughs> being, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So um, where to next, Evan? Um, so <laughs> continuing. into each other's workplaces and practice and um, it was especially lovely for me sitting listening to Evan as he mentioned he used to work at Blue Gum and when I started at Blue Gum 13 years ago um, Evan was one of the first educators that I encountered and he showed me around the preschool so it's really nice to be here today to see where Evan's up to on his journey and also just to acknowledge that um, we all are in different places and different spaces at different times like the students and the families that we're with um, so yeah, it's good to be able to reconnect and also then to think about where you will be in 5 and 10 and 15 years from now on your own journey. So today Sabudra and I are here on behalf of um, the students, the educators and the families at Blue Gum to present this learning together. The title, We Can, we can Do It Together Like We Do, Then We Understand It Better, comes from one of the preschool students this year, Tommy. And um, when Tommy first said this to me, 
I was pretty excited because it um, fed really well into my action research this year, um, which is about cultivating immunities as we go through the year grade school this year. And the part of it that I really loved is that the way that Tommy has said it, that he has said that we can do it together and the together is the important part then. But it's the bit that he says like we do and that was his understanding of how blue gum works and his understanding of who he is within that community. So um, the title's pretty meaningful to us as well. So just to give everybody a little bit of an understanding about blue gum, a little bit of history, like Wendy said, thank you Wendy, that we are 20 this year, which is a pretty awesome milestone for a small community school. I think it's important to point out that we are a community school, we're a non-for-profit school. Oh, and sorry, before I get right into things, just no photos from you guys where we've got students in the slides, please, just because we um, we have got permission to have them in um, the slideshow, but not for you guys to take home with you. Um, so it is really exciting that we're 20 this year, and we started back in 1998 as a small group of parents approached some educators in Canberra because they were having trouble finding uh, middle and high school options, so secondary schooling options for their children. And the idea came about to start a community school, but not that was a school that uh, started with the middle and high school, but that started from the, uh, the ground up, where the idea of the preschool was born. So the preschool started with four students and just as many staff. Uh, and it was by word of mouth and people walking around the neighbourhood that started to understand that blue gum existed and started to take on some of the ideas um, and the philosophy that was taking shape around blue gum. From here, as those students grew and as the as over that first year the class grew as well to be a full preschool class, then it moved up to kindergarten and then year one. Blue gum moved around a little bit then, um, just trying to find the location that would work as the school grew and we went up each year and now we have two campuses. Um, our Dixon, the original beautiful campus is still there and that has two preschool um, classes each day there, 25 students each. And then over at Hackett we have, we now have a playgroup, a preschool, a primary school, a middle school and a high school. And um, the way that it works is that we're small by design so um, we have 25 students each year level multi-aged with um, two educators and then specialists and different things that happen as well. Uh, and the way that it works from the preschool point of view is that we have two, three and five day bookings available. I, um, I suppose this picture was put here so that we could show everyone that this is the, this is the new preschool that we opened this year over at Hackett. We got a grant from the government to open the new preschool because we had such a big waiting list for our preschool that we didn't have enough spots for everyone to be able to come. So um, we were very appreciative to get the grant from the government that Blue Gun then obviously contributed a considerable amount of money to as well. But of course, like what happens, sometimes the building work didn't um, work in exactly the way we thought with when the preschools were ready to start. So for their first day of preschool, we were looking in at preschool and we were over with the school for a, for a big part of the day. So this is a really special photograph because this is the first day of the official school year at the start of this year and you can see Jonathan, one of our landscape gardeners up in the um, right hand corner, explained to the students as they were saying, come on, how long is it going to be? We're ready. We're here. We've got our bags. We're ready to start preschool. So what was really beautiful about this part of our journey was that we were able to then show 
Um, but for a school and drive to have that connection with the building as well and with the space that they hadn't until then um, been part of because some of them have never been in a formal education setting until then. So Badger and I wanted to focus today on community classrooms, which is one of the um, one of the programs that we have at Bluegum. And the way that community classrooms works is we've been doing it for about seven years. And it was thinking that happened at preschool from, I suppose, us taking and reflecting what was happening over at our primary school. Our primary school works very much so that rather than having a big school that's got a science lab and a, um, a drama space and a, a lots of extra things, the students go and the students and the educators go out into the community. So they might go to CRSIRO or they might they go to different places for those specialty areas. And as a preschool, we were doing lots of excursions and things with what was working and what was happening in our emergent negotiated curriculum. But there wasn't that reconnection with space that we wanted to be happening. So there wasn't that constant visiting of one space to deepen relationships and deepen the learning at that space and then to take that back to preschool. So the notion of community classrooms began where we thought about as a, as a team of educators, how could we do that? We've been to many places over the last seven years. Um, and this is to remind me, we've been to many places over the last seven years, including Mount Majura, the Botanic Gardens, New Acton, Garima Place, lot man-made and natural occurring spaces, just depending on who, um, who our preschool community is for the year and, and what the intent is behind things for the educators as well. The biggest part of starting community classrooms was an advocacy point of view, because what we wanted to do was we could see how once people were coming into Blue Gum, they were really um, getting more passionate about children and the rights of the child and the way life can be for children and the way that we can see students, the way that we can see them as competent and capable. Um, but what we wanted to do is be able to share that with the wider Canberra community. So by going out into the community and showing that preschoolers aren't getting ready to be active citizens, preschoolers are active citizens, but you can't share that with people unless they're seeing them being active citizens. So we really wanted to advocate that for the students and for Blue Gum. And here's just a few examples of us out and about. This is one of some Bugger's favourite photos because it's that beautiful notion of the encounter in the city. See the man who's just come across the street and the joy that he's got from encountering the preschoolers there. from um, our mushroom exhibition. And it's often what happens with community classrooms is that we end up, there's either a gift back to the place where we've been or there's some sort of exhibition to celebrate the learning, just depending on where we are and what's contextual with what's happening in Canberra at the time as well. In the city again, here we are at the Botanic Gardens. In the city, it's pretty powerful having a morning meeting in the city because everyone's working and hustling and bustling and. Um, so Budra is going to talk a lot more about that with us next and up on the mountain. I'll hand over to Sabatra. Thanks. So today is a research in community and again as you've seen hopefully and getting a glimpse off we're we as educators are engaged as researchers alongside our students and alongside our families. The story I'm going to tell you is from a community classroom exploration last year at Garima Place, where we as educators had the intent of our students seeing themselves as citizens in their city. We'd had a lot of exploration around Dixon, where, where our campus is, 
and we wanted to test how that was going to work. We're also highly anticipating the uh, light rail next year for where we could possibly go. Students have already got plans, it's all underway. So the story I'd like to share with you, and again, it's one of those really powerful moments, being able to reflect on your own journey as an educator, reflect on the stories that you've been working with with students and your research together. So reflecting on a story that happened last year has again given me new ways of looking at it, new ways of seeing it, and I think that's a really powerful thing as an educator to be able to engage in. So connecting um, sculpture, connecting people, place and materials. So researching civic, and we again see the sites as, as a site of research, when we're exploring the site and we're now initial development of relationship, we haven't got an agenda of, okay, so we're gonna visit the sculptures or we're gonna explore escalators. We've worked out as educators the spaces, we've explored them together, and then we go in with our students to find out what the threads of interest are for them, what the research focus is for our students. And again, we wouldn't be looking for that on the first second we hop off the bus and start exploring the city. That's over time of that research. So again, that invitation, when you're in a space with students, you help others in the community see them differently, and we also have those wonderful unexpected moments. We're looking at Robert Fink's The Journey, lights are off, and the head of the department comes out and says, come on in, we'll turn it on for you. So again, that opportunity by being there and exploring, we've encountered the community in a different way and the community's encountered us in a different way. Our preschool students are three to five and we have that joy of having our students mostly for more than one year. So for a lot of these students, these are continuing relationships with spaces as well. So again, the city, we were exploring um, Civic Square, we were exploring Barima Place, we were exploring City Walk. So we were particularly in the heart of the city and again, exploring in each visit different spaces. So each visit's around three hours once a week. Um, looking with the students and making discoveries. They discovered the Canberra quilt on the, on the ground. Again, those unexpected things and finding ways to keep those memories for them. Looking at this, and obviously for us as educators, this is a part of our reflective data collection with the students over what it is that we've been researching and what it means to us and what the threads of thinking are. The ACT Memorial, and again, seeing it from different perspectives. I was looking at the big picture, the students were enchanted by the up. So being able to have those conversations and those journeys together, weather. We don't believe in there's any such thing as bad weather, it's being inappropriately dressed. And the enchantment of being in the city in a cold, wet winter's morning, that's the most talked about visit we had the, the day it was raining, because the sculptures were different, the city was different, our encounters were different with the pedestrians in the city. Finding sculptures in unexpected places, so again, moving beyond that notion that it was only the thing on a flip that was the sculpture, and our encounters with it. Over the weeks, there were particular sculptures that the Bower students uh, were very enchanted with. This is Jan Brown's Icarus series. Jan Brown has depicted the story of Icarus and Daedalus. And if, you, if you're not sure of that story, it's a story where Icarus is released, Icarus and his father break out of jail, and they made wings that are put together with wax. Uh, Daedalus told Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun, your wings will melt, as the preschoolers will say, and he didn't listen to his dad. He went too close to the sun and he dropped dead on the, in the ocean. So that story was really important to the students. They experimented with wax as a way of holding things together and decided that, no, it's not actually the strongest material possible. But that relationship with Icarus became very important to us. 
um, Axel is actually copying the story by rubbing it in his um, journey because he needed to remember the story and he needed to remember it when he was 27. <laughs> After that, apparently, no, it's fine. Um, another sculpture that became very important to us was the big little man. And remembering these are encounters over two terms. This is a long thread in the story. It's not day one we did this, day two that. It's a long thread. This is my reflection. That's why it's quick. So Big Little Man's by Dean Bowen. He's part of a series. A really interesting thing to the students about Big Little Man was how big he is. He's taller than me. I'm, I'm about at his chin. He's, he's tall, but he's incredibly thin. And his texture is extremely textual. The students can climb under him. And I just need to let you know, as a part of the student's risk-benefit assessment, they will always, before they encounter a sculpture, look for the signs of how to use that sculpture. If there's a sign that says, please do not climb on, then we respect that. The city sculptures are actually made to be interacted with. So we've never encountered a sign in the city saying, please don't hop on the sculpture. That's, that's a good thing to know. Um, so yes, the, the relationship with this and the stories with it. Meantime, as these research projects are happening, so are many others. This is not our singular focus. This is a part of many threads woven together. We were also building a coat rack. The students had decided that we didn't have enough space and lockers and we needed a coat and hat rack and they had designed it and needed to go to Bunnings to get the materials. I, as a researching educator and our team, had looked up the artworks of Canberra and had developed a relationship with it and I realised that Dean Bowen had another sculpture on the way to Bunnings at Franklin. This is Lady with Flowers. The thing that really enchanted the students was the relationship, the story between the big little man and Lady with Flowers. The story is, and this is on Dean Bowen's website, the story is that Lady with Flowers is waiting to catch the bus to Civic to play with her friend, the big little man. <laughs> so that notion of distance and that notion of relationship, relationship materials, space, and the connection between the artists was very important to the students. You can see a lot of similarities between them, but there's also a lot of differences. The materiality became very important in the fact that it was uh, made with metal. The students on our next visit to Civic had talked about the donut, and I, I've only read the artist descriptions and I couldn't find a donut. This is colloquially known by our students as the donut. This is David Gent's life cycle sculpture. This was really important again in that materiality. They really wanted to understand metal as a language and metal as a language for communicating thinking, which they were seeing in the sculptures, that all the sculptures were telling a story. All of them were made from metal that they'd been attracted to and they wanted to explore more deeply what that meant. So over many weeks of the students actually working out what their questions were about sculpture, what was their intent as a community about sculpture? What was this enchantment with metal? Was it purely being a conveyor and a viewer of the arts and being able to explore differently? Or was there a deeper intent? It became very clear that the students' intent was to make their own metal sculpture. It had to be a real sculpture. It was not okay just to have thought about it and drawn it. They needed to actually create a real metal sculpture. So that metal is a sculptural material I've been a preschool teacher for 25 years. I'm not actually a metal fabricator. So that's, again, owning that with students. Yep, that's a fabulous idea. We're going to have to work that out together because I actually don't have those skills and I don't have that knowledge. Who in our community can support us? 
they had to work out what their actual questions were about metal because while we're finding people to support us, we need to have an idea of what we needed support with. So they had questions about um, metal as a material, how it's fabricated, how a design is taken and transferred into metal. Who does that? A big question about platforms. Obviously, platforms are very important for art in the city, so that became another important thing. And as we were exploring this need to make real sculpture, we were delighted that my co-teacher, Jess, Jess's dad happens to be a metal fabricator, an engineer in the mines. Slightly unfortunately, he lives in Emerald in Queensland. There's a slight distance between Emerald and Dixon, but we finally had someone who could support our information. Jess and Paul, her dad's over Paul, um, had conversations over the phone and Paul sent video of him welding so the students could do their risk-benefit assessment about is it something they can do? And I can tell you Jess and I were very delighted when they decided it was perhaps not something they were going to do. <laughs> I could write that risk assessment, but it'd be a very big document, let me tell you. So working again, thinking about the connections in our community and as researchers, who can we work with and how can we get help with that? I'm going to read this off here. So looking at the early years learning framework, we see that children actively construct their own understandings and contribute to others' learnings. They recognise their agency, capacity to initiate and lead learning, and their rights to participate in decisions that affect them, including their learning. We view children as active participants and decision makers. It opens us to possibilities for educators to move beyond preconceived expectations about what children can do and learn. Educators' practices and the relationships they form with children and families have a significant effect on children's involvement and success in learning. Children thrive when families and educators work together in partnerships to support young children's learning. And I would add in that children, educators, communities and families. For us, the community is a very big part of that. So again, looking at those authentic ways, I reached out to the community and was able to find David Jens. So I talked to David about, in the preliminary planning, uh, he would love the idea of meeting preschoolers. I let him know that they've been working on this for quite a bit of time, there's quite a few questions. <laughs> David said, don't worry Subhadra, I was a uni lecturer, they won't throw me. I was like, okay, I've, I've let you know that there's gonna be some questions here, David, are, are you ready for this? So on a beautiful winter's morning, <laughs> we arrived in the city waiting for David and the students were a bit concerned that maybe David didn't know that you can actually be out in any weather and wondered whether David would be a bit worried because it was wet. To their joy, David had no fear of the rain. He'd been swimming that morning. In come David and under the eaves, out of the rain, the students asked their questions and David answered them. Their questions were absolutely about the fabrication. They needed expert advice on welding. What materials were welded? How did welding work? How did the artists support the welding? David himself didn't do the welding, so that was really important to them. So they needed to know about design brief. David talked them through the process he used as an artist. He talked about building miniature models, <coughs> multiple drafts, testing materiality, and again, redrafting and rethinking as new ideas appeared. So David really helped us understand that we weren't actually meant to, as artists, come up with the idea initially, and that was perfect, and we never moved from that. So it was really powerful for the students and that conversation with David to see that this is an artist's way of working. Drafting, redrafting, coming back, changing and looking at the materiality are really important facets of developing art. And as they'd recognised themselves as sculptors, it was very important that we knew.
that. David was told about his sculpture being a donut. He was quite fascinated by that idea. And David was really excited at the children's actual tactile exploration of his sculpture. Because one of the questions they asked him is, how do you feel about people being on your sculpture? And David let them know that as an artist, he wants the community to engage with it. He would, of course, appreciate respectful engagement, not trying to break it, very hard to break, but that idea of actually being on sculpture and in sculpture for many artists is a big part of their intent. So armed with the information that David had given us, we looked at how we could transform our thinking and our community's thinking into an actual sculpture. So meanwhile, in our spaces, like I said, this is one part of many threads that are woven together, the students are exploring their theories and they're exploring them, particularly in the initial stage, around materiality. They're looking at materials they're familiar with. They're rethinking the way they use them. They're looking at materials and ways to challenge how they use materials. And returning to metal. So holding that thread of metal very, very close, that was something that was not negotiable, but they needed to test other things around it. So some of the things that we needed to find out, Paul advised the students that they had wanted to use our metal, metal loose parts and Paul let them know about what can be welded and what can't. Steel can be welded, aluminiums and alloys cannot. So Paul let us know that with a magnet we'd be able to work out what was steel and what was not. So families and students worked together to sort our grand array of metal loose parts into parts that could be welded and parts that could not. Another choice in the students about materials was that rather than purchasing materials, we would source our own materials. So this is a collection of metal we found at preschool and some families have bought in things and a lot of our loose parts have been donated by families as well. So making those decisions around metal, testing and sorting the metal, um, knowing what can be welded and they were put into separate places. Um, then the notion of experimenting with the sculptural possibilities. So we've chosen the materials, we've found what we want. What do these materials tell us about the possibility for sculpture? Trying to make connections with the loose parts. They were enchanted with the diversity of metal loose parts we have in the bower and needed to have a connection between them. Recognising the students' individual thinking and how they brought that to their community and how that became then collective thinking. So working through that with the metal loose parts as well. They were not satisfied with fitting and interlocking them. It was not as sturdy as they needed it to be. <coughs> they experimented with cable ties, which did mean did meet their need for things to stay connected. They weren't falling apart. However, it did not meet their need for aesthetic beauty. This was not aesthetically pleasing to the students and they needed to come up with another way. So thinking about David Jensen's life cycle and the webbing that he held the rocks together with, the students decided that they could try the frame on the bike wheel as um, a way of holding the loose parts. The loose parts were pivotal as the centre of the sculpture, but they needed to be attached and they needed to fix in a way that satisfied the students' aesthetic thinking as well as their clinical thinking around it. Degas reminds us that art is not what you see, but what you make others see. They also worked on the idea of how the sculpture could work upright. Peter made a great discovery with Jess that if he put it against an easel, it was a lot easier to start building the sculpture up. 
and then sharing that information with his peers. So we started working out how to connect it in an upright. The interior, the centre, the heart of the sculpture has been well thought out. The plans are in action. We can see where we're going with that. A few things we need to work out, but overall, the students are very satisfied with the heart of their sculpture. Meanwhile, as Michaeli said, our, we, it had been announced that we had been successful in funding for a new preschool, and our new preschool will be opening in the start of this year. So around August, the students made a decision that we in the Bower needed to celebrate the opening of our new preschool. Thinking about and reflecting on the relationship with the sculptures that they've been particularly engaged with, Icarus in particular, and David Bowen, and Dean Bowen's work, Lady of Flowers and The Big Little Man, the students recognised the relationship between the sculptures. And while the artist, Dean Bowen, was the same artist and he'd used the same materials, the sculptures were also very different. That became really important to the students. They decided we needed two sculptures. One would go to our Hackett Preschool and one would stay at our Dixon Preschool. And the intent behind the sculptures was we're all Blue Gum Community School. We're the same, but we're also all different. So the external frame of the sculptures was intended to be the same with the heart, the loose parts in the centre, showing that diversity in the community. So that drawing there is the first drawing of we need one at Dixon and we need one at Hackett. That was really important for the whole group's decision making there. Levy reminds us, the common sharing of cognitive capacities, abilities and memories of people participating in a flow of information, a flow requiring communities of imagination, not only news. Again, not limiting that idea that we couldn't actually build a metal sculpture. Well, finding out how. Uh, a family gifted us some steel rods. Again, we were trying to work out the frame in the middle. They worked out that it wasn't steel in a bike frame, they couldn't weld to it. So a family gifted us metal rods, and this is Zoe showing the community how she thought they could actually be woven. And again, that individual thinking in a, as a community's thinking, important decisions are made around the fabrication. The materials are chosen. We have steel ribbon, which will be a part of the wings, because the wings are really important. Again, a reference to Icarus. And the loose parts in the centre. So our draft is prepared. But remembering David Jensen's information about needing a design brief when you are not the person who will actually make your sculpture, the design brief is pivotal to your idea being able to be transformed into the artwork you want. So the students worked very diligently on working a plan for their loose parts, which they personally were connecting, but what wings they would have and how that frame would go. So the wings were a challenge because they recognised that they couldn't have 25 different wings because it wouldn't look the way they needed it to look. So that intent behind developing a set of wings, lots of different ideas were explored. This is really showing the connections between the materials and the way they need to be connected. Another student clearly articulated that the possibilities of welding and how he could see that welding could actually make anything possible. We just had to have a good design for what was possible. Another student really celebrate, was celebrated with their community. The notion of the wings needing to be the same and was working on duplication of those wings. And again, remembering that they needed both sculptures in both sites to externally be the, be the same. Deciding that the wings needed to look like wings, but their wings. And that connection again was key. 
Stefania reminds us the value of research sustains and connects the values of rich normality, narrative, memory, locality, identity relationships, transparency, democracy, language and beauty aesthetics, leading to a new universe of possibilities. So over a weekend, Paul flew down. He did visit his daughter Jess as well, but he flew down to weld the sculpture. You can see up on the piano in the corner there, the student's design brief. So Paul had the design briefs with him the whole process, and Paul, even if he had to make the slightest alteration because it simply couldn't be welded that way, was in conversation with the, with the preschoolers and myself over the weekend too. I had a few phone calls of, yes, no, if that's what has to happen, that's what has to happen. Because again, they'd already learned that from David Jets, that some things in the formation may not be the way you had thought they were, what's the solution you can get? So Paul welded two very big sculptures. It took him several days to weld. And then Paul came in on the Monday and we had a meeting with the students. Paul shared the process. Jess had taken photos, so the students went through the photos of how it was constructed. And Paul shared his skills as, a, as an engineer and as a welder for us on how he'd actually created that sculpture. This was a real celebration for the students for seeing that thinking transformed. The thinking was no longer two-dimensional thinking. This was now a real sculpture. So now it was time to start connecting the metal parts. So Paul had worked with the students on a couple of strategies on how that can work. The students had worked out that wire. And again, the loose parts, it didn't matter if they weren't steel because they were being connected in a different way. Over several days, the parts were attached. They had made very clear decisions about which parts were for the sculpture for Hackett and which parts were for the sculpture for Dixon. Some days that got a little bit tricky as the educators to remember exactly which one was which. We put a little note on one, it made it a bit easier. <coughs> so now that our sculpture's made, the students have decided at Dixon, it needed to be now our entry gate so everyone in preschool can celebrate the sculpture and so can everyone who walks past preschool. Again, our, our Hackett Preschool was still under construction. So Maureen was invited over, Maureen's Blue Gums Executive Director. And Maureen and the students discussed possibilities for the placement at Hackett. It wasn't possible to go onto the site because it was locked down for construction. So Maureen acted as our liaison. Again, her, she works at the Hackett campus, so her knowledge of it was very powerful for the students. And a decision was made similar to Dixon that the community needed to be able to celebrate this work. So it was intended to be placed in the garden at the back, and the back of Hackett is a, is a reserve, and it needs to be on the reserve because everyone walks on the reserve. So again, for the students, it was really important, like the sculptures they'd encountered the city, that the community could encounter their sculptures. And then another challenge emerged, a title. And as Margot said, after they deliberated for many weeks over what this was called, this was about them. This was about our community. It was about our connection as a community. It was about being together but apart. So the name was really important. Margot said, if there were 25 sculptures, it'd be so easy because we just call it whatever we wanted it to be. They worked out that wasn't gonna work. So again, reflecting on the work, going through the data, going through with them, the work they'd done over the year, and thinking about what was the intention? How did they encapsulate the intention of the sculpture through their title? 
our philosophy, where students are seen as capable, competent, creative, resilient, resourceful and responsible, is a part of our everyday conversations at preschool and through Blue Gun. It is not something that sits on the wall, it's a lived philosophy. The students made an important decision. They decided that the sculpture, this is the sculpture at Dixon, it's a little tricky to see, mainly because it's in a garden now. Um, the sculpture at Dixon is called, no, sorry, the sculpture at Hackett is called We Are Resilient, Resourceful and Responsible. This is the sculpture for Hackett. The sculpture, and there it's being installed by a family. And the one at Dixon is called We Are Capable, Creative and Competent. So for us, again, that's that lived experience, that lived philosophy and living as a community of researchers together. And that's my story of the sculpture. Thank you. Thanks, Subhadra. That was awesome and it's so lovely to hear it again. The reason why Subhadra and I decided to present together today and to present this story is because our relationship in it is quite unique. I came back to work, I was on maternity leave last year, and um, I was lucky enough to be part of this learning journey as a parent because one of my children was in the bout, we were in the bout last year and he's in the bout this year as well. So the beautiful thing for Spudra and I working on this, putting this presentation together was that she had the educator perspective of this and I had the parent perspective because I was at home being hassled about what metal bits we could bring in. <laughs> and I was responsible for reading the daily diary with Eden so we could see what was happening and why it was happening and how we could be contributing as a family and talking about it as a family. Um, we were going into the city as a family so that we could see the sculptures and Eden was giving tours to her aunties and uncles when they were in town and those sorts of things. So um, it was really awesome to hear it again and um, to think about it differently. And I really encourage you all to revisit the projects and the learning journeys and the things that you're doing together with students, the research that you're doing together, because even sitting there just then, I'm coming at it from a different perspective now, I'm back at work and I'm thinking about it differently and you learn so much about yourself and about the people that you're working with just through that notion of reflection and revisiting things. So I really encourage you, when you get back to work, I know we're all time for, I'm totally, totally all over the understanding of that, but just take five to go back over something that you have done in the past and how you now view it as a person, as a professional. Um, as Subhadra mentioned, our philosophy, we are wrapping it up, I'm conscious of time, but our philosophy um, is the three C's and the three R's. And we just wanted to show how we, it's a philosophy that's not just a piece of paper on the wall, it goes over everything. So it's our philosophy first and then the um, early years learning framework. It's our philosophy first and then our encounters with each other, with families, with the students. So it's always our philosophy first. So looking back over this, learning journey that happened last year. Subhadra and I were looking at how um, the philosophy was so um, incremental and so through everything, but how we reflected upon it for each of, our, um, each of our partners in our community. So thinking about if we see each other as competent, thinking about the students initially going into the city and how we as a community believe that of course they could go into the, the city for extended periods of time and of course we could research the city and of course we could be led by an emergent negotiating curriculum with how that could work. Thinking about um, our families, our parents as being capable, capable community members. So of course they could then support, like I did as a parent, to work, work, al sorry, to work alongside their preschooler with how they could be supporting, bringing in things from home. Bringing in, like I mean, Jess is supporting it as an educator even when she was supporting, she supplied her father to be doing a big part of this. 
things. Um, so it's really important for the to see how they were capable in it. And then thinking about from the creative point of view, um, I think what we often do as educators is we always think about how can the children be more creative? How can the students be more creative? What can we be doing to support them with their creativity? But what can we be doing to support each other with our creativity as well? Because there's always parts that you know you feel really good about from a creative from a creative perspective, and then there's always parts you want to work on more. The educators in this story had to constantly keep thinking and reflecting on the materials that they could um, put out as provocations for the students as they wanted, were wanting to build this. It wasn't all just about an art line or a paper. There were loose parts. There were a number of things that were made available. So looking at how the educators needed to be creative in this story. And if we look at it from the three R's, thinking about the responsibility that the families had. So you have a responsibility as a family at Blue Gum to be making sure that you're checking in on the daily diary each day to be making sure that you're reading the research updates that come through fortnightly. To be, you, you are responsible for knowing what's happening in the preschool space, um, and you're responsible for being in dialogue with your child about that. So when a parent says to us, I have no idea what's going on here, it's like, well, hang on a minute. How could you have no idea? Because if a student came to a morning meeting and said to us, I've got no idea what's happening at preschool, we wouldn't take that. That's not, that's not an okay answer. So supporting the families to be responsible because they can be responsible um, in the preschool community as well. Then the last couple were just thinking about resourcefulness. So the resourcefulness of the students. We knew when the students, Sabadra and the team knew when the students really took to the donut or the life cycle, that there was so much more we could unpack in this just by listening to the knowledge that they already had, the knowledge that students already have. I think there's a little bit of a gap in thinking sometimes with that they come to preschool to get all this knowledge. What about the knowledge that they already have that we need to acknowledge as well? And what do we do with that knowledge then? Students are so resourceful and we need to build on that resourcefulness in order to be able to be communities together. And finally, the resilience that the educators needed because it is, it can be a little bit of a cringe, can't it, when you've got David Jens coming in his meeting you and you've got all these questions and you've got this beautiful, idyllic, sunny, you know, photo around the sculpture that's going to be in the Canberra Times to be able to see for everybody, and it's pouring rain. Thunder. What are we going to do, Sophie? So the resiliency of the educators as well to go, okay, well, we usually go to the city if it was raining, so raincoats on, people, let's hop on that bus and go. And then to see the resiliency of David as well, that he was there with his raincoat and his umbrella, was pretty awesome too. Um, that's all from us. Thank you very much for listening, and um, have a good it's so wonderful to be here and um, Sharon and I were talking over the break about the threads that we're able to see across all presentations and I'm hoping that you'll see those threads coming through what we talk about as well. Um, this is a presentation that um, we also did for the Early Childhood Australia conference. Um, however, we had double the time so um, I promise we're not, we're not going to race through it. But we'll just do a bit of a moderate jog through through our slides. Just pause. Which button do I press to move that along? The arrow button that goes forward. Okay. <laughs> well done. Um, so before we begin, we feel that it's important to acknowledge the fact that um, this work doesn't belong to us. It belongs to um, our educators. It belongs to the school leaders past and present. Um, we're just sharing it with you. Um, so the, the team has worked really, really hard over the years to really expand on their understanding of um, what play is and how dispositions can be married with um, our understandings of play. Um, 
So the focus for the session is going to be on dispositions, but in order to do that, we need to give you a bit of context um, around our understandings of play and around our, our service. Um, so a lot of you would be familiar with the early childhood schools in Canberra. Um, they're a shared service between the education directorate and um, an education and care service. For us, it's Woden Community Services, and we have uh, two of our wonderful leaders from our service here with us today, so we'd like to acknowledge that partnership. Um, and the unique thing about our service is that we have um, a philosophy that goes right from birth to eight years old, and pedagogies that run from birth to eight years old. And this is our philosophy here, work hard, play hard, and be kind. Um, and we've done a lot of work around um, the interlocking <coughs> nature of, of these three terms. Um, and on the next slide, Sharon will show us that we've done a, a lot of work unpacking these three terms, and you can see the sophisticated nature of each of them. Um, and we quite often uh, have people saying to us, well, you've got play hard, how do you play hard? But we really acknowledge the fact that yes, play is uh, it's playful and it's fun, but it can also be challenging and it involves a lot of thinking. Um, so you can also see here that uh, we're not into flashy and polish. We usually just have Sharon's lovely handwriting on a scrap piece of paper. And that, become, that becomes our thinking and, and uh, what we present to our community. So I guess from what Mitchell was saying, um, come those interlocking natures of where play sits and where our philosophy is, um, comes a lot of paradoxes. And so um, because we're um, Department of Education, you know, um, the cognition and the thinking and the assessment and all of those things um, are at a very rigorous kind of level and expectation. And it's very hard for us to um, tell the whole wide world about how important play is in the role of being all those things and being rigor. So we had to work really hard at um, getting some really strong research behind why play can actually be hard work. Um, and so, um, you know, the, this morning when we heard um, from Rod, I feel like we're quoting this. Were you quoting Stuart Brown? Yeah. How many people um, have had this book in their lives? Do you want to see hands up? Hopefully, Booktopia is going to be like going off. This is the book for you. Um, so, um, Rob was talking about um, it's really hard to define what play is. Um, I'm just going to read you a little bit about where the paradoxes started to come into play for us. So, another reason I resist defining play is that at its most basic level, play is a very primal activity. It is consciousness. Just move back a little bit. <laughs> it's pre-consciousness and pre-verbal. It arises out of ancient biological structures that existed before our consciousness or our ability to speak. For example, the natural trusting of tussling of sibling kittens just happens. In us, play can also happen without a conscious decision that, okay, I'm going to play now. Like digestion and sleep, play in its most basic form proceeds without complex intellectual framework. And so with Stuart's work, we have a base to move forward to say, yeah, it is in all of our work that we do at Lions. And it's interesting because um, when we presented this last time, we asked the audience to have a discussion around play and, and their understandings. 
Um, we're not going to do that this time because of time, but it was interesting different perspectives that came out. And the reason that we got people to have that discussion is um, a colleague of, our, of ours actually asked us about a year and a half ago, and it was really hard to do. And I think as early childhood educators, we don't do it enough. Um, and I remember reflecting on it, and um, the, the people that I was having the discussion with were a bit surprised when I said that um, the PhD that I'm doing at the moment, that's play for me. Um, it's where I go into this flow state where I'm just absolutely absorbed in what I'm doing. Um, it does make my life a little bit sad, but um, that, that state of flow is so important to play. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge those different perspectives on what play, play are and children's different perspectives on what play is. And so to help us go kind of deeper with that, we discovered um, Harvard Project Zero's work around playfulness and this beautiful diagram which every time we say this we don't know how to describe it. No. But it's this interlocking yummy thing with playfulness at the centre of it and when choice, wonder and delight come into play, you get this natural occurring kind of playfulness. And there's beautiful things in there that allowed us as educators to re-see how we are being playful or setting up for that provocation. In that, um, there's this beautiful word, fugue, which is under delight. Um, and then what are we doing every single day that's actually allowing for that connectionness um, through that beautiful word? Anyway, that changed our lives. And you've got a copy of that um, uh, on, on the desk there. Um, yeah, and it also gave us a chance to bring playfulness into the world of dissolutions. So our teams actually use this as a lens for their, their planning. When they're planning, they have it on the table, making sure that those elements <laughs> are, are present in what they're doing. And we look for it in action in our learning spaces or up the hill. And families love it because it comes from Harvard University, so it's really important. <laughs> so, um, a few years ago, we came across Guy Claxton's work around the dispositions for learning. Um, Guy Claxton did, uh, and there's the book there, Educating Ruby. Um, Guy Claxton did um, a research study around the, the dispositions and the skills that are important for people after they life in school. Um, and his research came up with uh, seven Z's. Um, I'll talk about the eighth one in a moment. Um, and they're collaboration, confidence, creativity, craftsmanship, curiosity, commitment, and communication. And we actually marry these with, uh, with our play um, in, in the teaching that we do, because we see these as, as really important fundamental skills. Um, in recent years, we've engaged with Dr. Thomas Nielsen at the University of Canberra. And his work centres around social emotional learning and the curriculum of giving, and that's formed part of our play as well. And he was reflecting with us around the seven C's and he, he felt that there was something missing. And the element that was missing is compassion. So we've actually added that. We haven't actually got Guy Claxton's permission to do that, but we're doing it anyway. <laughs> so we explicitly teach the dispositions for learning. We unpack them with children and we embed them in, in our learning experiences and in our play experiences. Um, this amazing example here is, um, it's Sharon's example actually, so you, you can probably describe it better than me, but um, it came from a piece of literature around making a stand and, and standing up for what you believe in. 
and they uh, designed this whole community project through their, their play and, and through their learning, and um, it was a way of, of raising money for, what was it they raised money for? That's right, yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm just going to talk about this really, really quickly. Most of you, well, some of you will have seen um, this workshop model um, in, a, in a literacy context. Um, we actually use it for all of our learning, um, and it's the one-third, two-third model, um, one-third being um, explicit teacher-directed instruction, and then two-thirds um, being children's practice, and uh, in this case, play. Um, so with our dispositions for learning in the focus in the mini lesson, we actually introduce the, the focus disposition to them um, and we really unpack it and look at what that might look like in their play during that session. Then they have this big piece of sustained practice and play where they get to, to put that disposition in, into practice. Um, and during that time, the teacher's working with children to really understand that disposition. Um, you can see this little, this little dotted section here is a catch. That might be where the teacher identifies that a group of children are doing um, amazing things around uh, their craftsmanship. And so they might stop the whole group, get them to come over and get the children to share what they're doing around craftsmanship um, as, as a way of, again, explicitly teaching that disposition. And then at the end, we come back and we reflect and, and we document that learning. Um, so at Lions, we work really hard to, um, I guess, create the, the best opportunities to be able to marry the dispositions for learning, plus also the Australian curriculum, plus also, um, you know, the big ideas from the early years learning framework. And so we've discovered that um, through our work every day in play workshops, loose parts and being out of the gate, engaging with community um, and being in our beautiful playground, which is Oakey Hill, um, are the best places to help us grow these dispositions for learning. And what we've found is that um, if they're up over here um, and a kid's struggling, their backpack's on and their legs just aren't going any further, we say things to them like, um, your legs are amazing. Um, what can you do now to commit? What does it keep say to yourself? What can you do to persevere? <coughs> Bringing in those dispositions. And when they move through that experience and it's embodied in them, they've done it, um, they then can translate that over to maybe a stuck moment when they're, um, you know, getting smarter about being a wild reader or something like that. So then we engage from that experience, translate it over to here inside, let's get smarter about reading, um, let's draw on that. You've done that before when you went up the hill, what is it like now? It's still that same feeling, what are you going to do to move through this? Um, and it's that relationship between the going out and experiencing it, challenging yourself, um, and then coming back and putting it in. It's that transformation where we get our biggest bang for our buck around why it's so important to have playfulness and dispositions um, you know, to grow these amazing children. Me? I'm only going to talk about Out of the Gate. Okay. Um, so when I first came to Lions, it kind of broke my heart a little bit because um, our kids lived inside and in their outdoor beautiful learning spaces a lot. And so I was going stir mad. Um, so we just started to just go, 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 go. And so we have these beautiful, look at our, look at where we are. That doesn't take long for us to get up there. 20 minutes with four-year-olds, legs going. Um, Chrissy and Bunny with our babies, they take them up in prams. We've got beautiful Dr. Sue Parker, Parker, Parker. 
um, who is one of our neighbours who opens up her front garden for anyone in the community to come and engage with and play. And our children have helped her over the years to co-construct that environment. Um, and that's two minutes down the road. So we're all the time out experiencing and being in the world. And Out of the Gate has changed our, our children's lives, their well-being, their commitment to learning, all of those yummy things. And we did see a snake last, just like, it was like a month ago, a week ago. Um, I didn't believe my year two leader daughter, but yeah, it was there. And they just stood really still and they just kept on going. And it did travel up the hill, because I have also heard that snakes like, can't go up the hill to get you. Well, it did. <laughs> Everyone was safe, but. Um, so another change we had was to, um, to really think about how we did play in the school and how we um, really activated the work hard, play hard, be kind philosophy in our daily work. And so um, we went from a Kathy Walker approach to, um, which is beautiful and fab, um, to provocating and to, and to um, you know, drawing on the interests and having focused children and things like that to a more sociocultural um, constructivist approach. Um, and we started just going out and doing it. So we got this picture. We were in Melbourne looking at her fabulous school and then our year two sent us a picture of them up on country. And we're like, we're not going to spend all our life doing that anymore. We're going to go out and do it. And that change um, has been enormous. Um, and yeah, it's wonderful to, you know. It, it was interesting. Um, the other day I covered a kindergarten class and um, I asked the teachers what they wanted me to focus on and they said, oh, we're, we're learning about living things at the moment in our play. Um, so children are, are using clay to construct some, some environments and things like that. And I, I just questioned them about it. I said, well, hold on, well, why are they using clay to construct a, a, a natural environment? Why aren't they just out doing the work in the natural environment and actually um, doing the gardening? and..." Um, exploring the living things that are, are outside and it was a bit of a shift for, for the teachers which was great. So we, we sort of think to ourselves, um, because we, we do still provocate a little bit, um, oh, you do. but we always think to ourselves, is there an authentic way to do it? A real world way to do it? If there is, then we do it. If there's not, then we look at, at provocating. And going out of the gate is a provocation, so it doesn't have to be um, and so this leads into our loose parts work, which um, I'm sure there's some people here who've played with us, whether it's at, um, uh, not CSIRO, Questacon, and uh, have heard our work that we've been doing around loose parts. Um, and so this is a, a daily, at least weekly practice for our children. Um, and it's not open at lunchtime or anything like that. It's an intentional experience to actually grow these dispositions. So there'll be a focus, so if it's, Today we're going to get smarter about craftsmanship or collaboration. What is it you're going to be doing today that's going to be growing what that looks like for us um, with each other? Um, go about and do it. We don't, we're not critiquing them on, oh, wow, you've got an amazing bird that you've created or something like that. It's more about what does that disposition look like in action, in play? Um, and then we draw the threads on that um, and we keep on layering them over and over again so they're really getting smarter about what's growing them, what's driving them as a human being. Um, <coughs> that's our work through loose parts. This is a loose parts 
session, but I think we don't have time. Yeah, I think we might skip it because it goes for 15 minutes or something, and we don't have 15 minutes. But here, here are some, some beautiful narratives of um, some of the, the combinations of, of this learning. And um, the one up the top there um, is, is my favourite example, and every time uh, families come to look at our school or other educators coming to look at our school, this is the example that I always talk about. Um, our year two children, and this is an example of how I guess learning um, goes all the way up to eight-year-olds, um, our year two children have been engaging with Aboriginal elders and learning about their way of gathering, and they decided that they needed a, a gathering spot in the school. Um, so they, this was a year-long project. Um, it started but with them designing it, finding out information about it, um, building models for it. Uh, they then um, uh, did a budget for it, they sourced all the materials, they raised the money for it, they went and excursion funds to actually buy all the materials, they came back and they built it themselves, they planted all the plants, they did research around which plants are going to survive in that space. Um, they, there's artwork on the side of it um, and they did research into Aboriginal art and developed the Aboriginal art to go on the side. Um, they then had a smoking ceremony to open it, so they invited um, Duncan Smith in to, um, to do the smoking ceremony. Um, but even that was, was all them. They designed the flyers for the opening ceremony, they, um, they did the invitations, they scripted what was going to be said. So this whole project was theirs from start to finish and all happened uh, with huge dispositional work. Um, and all through that, the teachers were talking to them about different focus dispositions at different times and how they can um, really use those in their play and in their learning. And I guess also it's long, long work. So when we say about their connection with Duncan, they've already started one when they're four years old, when they go up onto Oakey Hill and go through a ceremony, um, welcoming them to country um, and the work that they do with Duncan there. And then they play with him for all the way until they're in year two. And so now this ceremony, um, this gathering spot is also the year two um, kind of ceremony. When they're leaving our school, they, um, they embark on a collection of rocks that from, uh, from Oakey Hill and they come into a ceremony with Duncan and all our community. And then they pass those rocks over to the year ones who are gonna be the elders for the year after. And that's a ceremony that now has been going for about four years. Um, and it just keeps on going. It's the most powerful thing um, for all our children and our families and the energy that comes from that experience this year, I think it's amazing. The sense of belonging that yeah. comes from that, that experience. Children know that they really belong how do I press play, Mitchell uh, Parker? Yeah. Good question. <coughs> you don't tap the screen. Well. Ah, no, I, it was a touch. I'm like, touch the screen. I'm just going to do it the long way. Okay. So this is um, a year two gathering ceremony. Thank 
around critical reflection and action research. And I know that there are some people who already, and you saw from the presentations today, who are already heavily involved in action research. 
So I'm going to ask the question, does anyone on the panel use an action research journal? And you can, can you tell us about how you use that journal? And I'm not heavily promoting documentation here. I'm just hoping <laughs> that... <laughs> how to um, about, um, approach the families as well, where we could start. So um, when we talked as a team, we discovered that what we needed to do was more let it happen with the children. So um, we gave them resources such as the dramatic play. We just placed them in the room and we waited for them to engage with it. At the, at the beginning, they were more engaging with the men and the women marrying each other. So they were marrying each other friends. Um, and then once we gave them other tools, such as um, books, um, where we approach um, different kind of relationship, they understood that anyone can love anyone and they would marry girls who marry girls, they even asked me if I could marry some, someone. I was like, I guess so, because it doesn't matter of the age. So we were also talking about age and differences between us. And that was mm, the most important part, I think. And then after that, as educator, we grow and we learn to respect our differences as well. And I, I always think it's very powerful when children start asking questions and we need to answer 
those questions. So well done. Um, I'm going to ask this one of Rod. How important do you think critical friends can be in an action research type setting? Um, I think there's critical friends for teachers and also critical teachers as critical friends for children. So I think both um, parties, uh, I think that's really important. Uh, mentorship, I think it was great to hear that um, that was part of lots of projects. Uh, and I think you, uh, I mean, I've been teaching now for 27 years and I still have two mentors who have been teaching for 50 years. <laughs> you know, so I'm still learning, I'm still on, a, on that, journey, that learning journey and it's incredibly important for me um, in my position, um, whether I'm a player with the children or whether I'm leading an organisation. So I think that those critical friends are absolutely essential. And I think the biggest thing around that is finding someone that you can trust enough and, and to encourage them to challenge you. Uh, and yeah, I think that's, that's a key part of my mentorship or critical friend relationship. And I think when it can, comes to the children, it's incredibly powerful for us to, and uh, I love the way that Wendy's brought it up now three times, is about to slow yourself down because your critical friendship with the children through their play is such, uh, it's so important. The word education does not mean stuff full. It actually means to draw out and lead forth. You cannot draw out when you're in a rush. Okay, you drawing out actually takes time. It takes purposeful um, intent to, to get to know the person that you're being in a friendship with. Uh, and again, that doesn't matter how old the person is, but in our particular role, I think. So being that critical friend is so important to help children to draw out, that's our professional capacity, that's our mental responsibility, and then to the second part of what um, education actually means is to, to lead forth. So from that deep interconnected relationship, that's where you use your critical thinking to say, well, you know, this is where we could go, or you can offer some uh, real world um, opportunities for them to unpack that thinking. And Blue Gum, that was a great example of how that critical friendship relationship um, sure had a nice product, but what was the most valuable thing around that? It was that incredibly rich process, that, um, that friendship, um, that critical friendship uh, was able to flourish. And you know, those, those children will be changed, so um, it's amazing. Um, Sharon, I saw you nodding when uh, Rod referred to drawing out. And when I think about those dispositions for play that you were actually working with the children with, and often, like we read about them as educators, we never think of actually talking with the children, or maybe some of you do, anyone out there that's uh, been brave enough to do that? And to me, yeah, look at them. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk to that a little bit more about how you, you see that as drawing out for children? Um, I guess um, one of the ways that we always kind of dive into things is, is this beautiful um, energy around co-construction. And so um, even though Guy Claxton talks about, you know, the traits of what makes a curious human and things like that, we always, like, dive into projects or play and things like that, and then we co-construct what that looks like at this moment in time. Um, and 
on this place, I guess where we stand. Um, and that kind of grows like from when they're four all the way through until they're eight. And it's that long, deep revisiting based on where you stand right now that actually makes the most powerful um, kind of impacts. And what we notice about our children, because they leave us when they're um, at the end of year two and we're always crying and it's really sad because they are really amazing humans. Um, when they go off to these new places, which is like back to New South Wales or over to Tuggeron, they're not going with a cohort of people. They're going mostly by themselves. They bounce into that world. And that's because they've had deep layering over time around what really matters and about who they are um, really matters. And their dispositions, what they bring every day, that matters. And just one last question. Um, I, I'd like Michaela to just build a little bit more on how was it a parent um, with your child through that lovely process <laughs> and that lovely learning that we saw with the Barbara today in the grass approach. Thanks, Wendy. Um, it, was, it was actually pretty emotional to start with. Um, I spent a lot of time, obviously, at Blue Gum and then watching your um, first precious person that um, went to preschool, I actually found pretty emotional to start with because all the things that I love about Blue Gum and all the things that I've been part of working on with Blue Gum, you then saw your child um, being part of and negotiating and wrestling with um, and then flourishing from. So it was pretty amazing as a parent. Um, it was also really tricky at times because I had to bite my tongue in a lot of conversations that Eve was coming home with because I was so excited about, oh, great, then we'll do this, then we'll do this, then we'll do this. And I was like, shh, and just listen to what she's saying. <laughs> So my partner, my husband, was really good with that in terms of just, um, let's just see where Eden goes with it, not all your, you know, those sorts of things. So um, it was really, it's a really beautiful experience to be a parent on the other side of it, but it's a tricky experience too, but it has made me more empathetic as a, um, as a educator now, definitely. I definitely now understand what happens before someone gets to the preschool gate in the morning. I understand that home a little bit differently. Um, and I understand just, yeah, it's, a, it's helped me to grow as a person. Um, and it's helped me to understand parents differently. Not better, I don't think, just differently. Yeah. Yeah. Has anyone thought of a question they wanted to ask out there at this stage? Elise? Whether it's best if parents are taking a 
So the question was around parental engagement. How do you encourage parental engagement? Or is it better just to take a step back? Or? Uh, I reckon um, it's a process. And for the extra research projects that we've been in, a, um, currently at my preschool, for instance, we, every project that we do is has the final step um, of having parents um, being part of that before we, you know, draw up all our final conclusions and that that type of thing. I think the process though has to start with us. It's the, the journey begins here and then it moves out and around. And I think parents and your wider community that you find the, exactly the right place for them to um, to join at the right time. I, I don't think it would for us um, and certainly the ones I've been involved in about okay. At, week, at month four, let's do it with the parents. It's just, how does it happen organically? But it's really important to have them. Have. And I don't think there's any rules and regulations about how much or how little. You know, you've got some people who are absolutely all over it like a rash, and they want to be part of it, and other people go, great, I love that, thanks, now, see you later. You know what I mean? I think both are okay, because your, your life is at different times and stages. And um, so I think, yeah, you definitely invite them in and just enjoy what you get. But the little hot tip there, make it matter to the parents. Because in our busy lives, if it doesn't matter, we skim over the top of it. But if it matters, they'll be like, you know what, I'm here early because I need to talk to you about this. And they're like, excellent. We are at time. Is there anyone with another burning question? No? Yes? ECA, are we going to do our draw of our... Yes, here we are. Well, lucky door prize. Oh, I'm drawing. Oh, I'm lucky. This is three. This is three. So the first one, prize one, which was the um, poster, Beck Lester. She is a member, so that's very good, Jack, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the second one. Green, my favourite colour. This one calls for the glasses. And one more. Oh, another green one. Oh, I shouldn't have said it was my favourite. Jody Pang. Oh. Hey. Excellent, and thank you for, uh, to ECA for, for that. It's added another dimension to our symposium. Um, I'd just like one more time to thank all of our presenters today. I would certainly most sincerely thank all of the people who have contributed from our Children's Education and Care Assurance team and the uh, support and help that they've all given in getting the symposium together. I do hope that you have enjoyed it. I think there are a multitude of take-home messages for you and, um, and I wish you all the very best and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.